Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, massive changes were occurring throughout Europe. France underwent a bloody revolution in which many political leaders were beheaded, known as the Reign of Terror. The European continent underwent the wrath of Napoleon and his gluttonous fervor. The Catholic Church began to play a pivotal role in the people's lives again. The most important event was all, of all were the advancements that occurred from Britain's transformation from the cottage industry, where many items were made in homes and where families could work on their own terms, meaning they didn't have to work in hostile work environments, such as in the factories, to the transfer of relentless toil in factories by the middle and working class. When you take into account all the factors which Britain had that almost seemed too coincidental at first, it becomes apparent why Britain was the first to reach economic success. They had many advances that seemed almost too perfect to be true. Some of the examples include great resources, as Edward Baines once said, they had lots of coal, tin, iron, and streams for water power. They had geographical advantages, such as Baines has said that they had a good position that protected them against invasion, and they had a good place for shipping. They had advantage in, advantages in government. For example, their government gave out loans, they had a central banking system, and their government established economy was capitalism and not mercantilism as it was before. They had a good laboring people. Many refugees, like Protestants and Flemish, who were good workers and who helped teach branches of industry throughout Europe, migrated into Britain and helped contribute to the overall economy. Other advances were made to peace too. The war in France effectively stopped improvements in every other European country and left Britain without a competitor. All of these factors are things that Bain has said in Britain's industrial advantages and the factory system. The extent to which Britain's economic dominance had many precursors. Mostly, they were technological in the fields of mechanization, transportation, and other innovations which increased the efficiency of industrial Britain. Britain's hardy agricultural workers and sometimes children which supplied labor for factories were the second key role. The last role was their government, aids of capital through national banks, loans, entrepreneurs, or through the sale of British goods in accordance to mercantilism. Today, I will talk about what these three factors are and go into depth about what specifically they accomplished. I'm Christian Miranda. And I'm Jose Tejeda. And today we will be talking about three main factors which helped Britain achieve economic dominance above the rest of Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. To understand how influential and game-changing the advancements were that helped Britain achieve economic dominance, you should first understand how the pre-industrial era was and how volatile life was. In the pre-industrial era, there was lots of rural communities and commoners engaged in agriculture. There wasn't much of a focus to make textiles or to manufacture goods other than for themselves. Most people were just trying to make a living and not starve to death. Labor-intensive handlooms did exist in the cottage industry, and the sale of imports was being made by merchants, but industry was not big on people's minds. When I say staying alive, it is not an exaggeration. 80% of the population lived in rural communities, and the other 20% had urban jobs. Life was very volatile. A bad weather may lead to a bad harvest, which in turn may cause starvation, famine, or death. Transfer was incredibly slow and consisted of horses, which were expensive to own, to tend to, and to feed. Transporta transportation via ships was advancing, but lacked overland shipping, which made 200-mile trips being journeys. Distance seemed much larger than it was actually was, and there was a lack of time-space compression, where distances were shrinked. All of this was soon to change, 
for Britain would soon realize their massive advantages in labor, land, and capital, but also in their labor, which would help them ascend to the monetary supremacy over most of Europe. The first factor which led to what was essentially a monopoly of textiles and other such goods was Britain's vast technological innovations. Most revolutionary innovations or adaptations to device came during the industrialization period from 1760 to 1840. But one alteration to the loom which happened in 1733 during the time of the cottage industry was as important as the inventions during the area of the Industrial Revolution. John Kay's flying shuttle was patented in 1733 before industrialization was large scale and it forever changed the way textiles were made. It set off a cascade of other ingenious minds finding ways to improve the efficiency of manufacturing. A shuttle in a loom is an oblong sort of ellipse and it had to be passed through one side of the textile by one person to, the, to another person on the opposite side to weave closed laterally. The flying shuttle put the shuttle on a track with wheels, allowing it to be actuated with the jerk of a rope. It led to one person being able to do the job of two. Wire textiles could be woven much faster and easier. Next was James Hargreaves' spinning jenny, which made the painstaking process of making cotton thread much easier. Before, spinners could presumably only make one line of thread at a time. Hargreaves' innovation could spin eight spindles, of coarse thread at its invention in 1764, but grew to make around 120 as technology advanced. The spinning jenny was hand-powered, but it helped alleviate massive thread deficit led in place by the fast-working looms thanks to the flying shuttle. Hargreaves' spinning jenny was eventually surpassed by Richard Arkwright's water frame, which was essentially the spinning jenny on steroids. It used water power to spin hundreds of spindles at a time, and it made the spinning jenny obsolete. As water power was needed, the water frame must be in a mill, which was close to a river or stream, which powered the water wheel to make the vast amounts of cotton thread. All of these innovations led to a large boom in the, cottage in, in the cotton industry in the 1780s. Textiles now played a big role in industrialization, as 22% of the industry could be attributed alone to the production of cotton textiles. Cotton, the cotton industry was growing at a rate of 13% a year, and the profitability of cotton led to more greed. More entrepreneurs wanted to divulge in the cotton industry as they saw that it was an easy way to make money, though it was by exploitation. The industry grew at a 0.7% rate from 1700 to 1760, and it grew at a 3% rate from 1801 to 1830, which was during the textile boom in Britain. Though no causation is mentioned, the size of the cotton industry must have played a decent role in increasing industrialization in Britain. Industrialization meant that much more goods and much more money were made. Mechanization meant much less man hours were paid by employers and therefore production costs were brought down. People still needed factories though. The industry did not lead to a lack of jobs. Instead, it led to more jobs being produced as now the cottage industry could not compete and people must work in factories if they did not want to die. Goods became cheaper due to production costs and made goods of the cottage industry no competitors. What you essentially had was a monopoly as no other goods besides the British factory made ones could compete in the market. Many people could buy these goods. Before it was only the rich who could afford cotton undergarments but now common people could afford cotton undergarments and clothes. The only thing left was to find a good way of shipping. No doubt one of the greatest innovations of industrial Britain was a steam engine made by Thomas Savory in 1698. Though Thomas Savory was the original inventor, it was incredibly inefficient and horrible. 
Thomas Newcomen used the vacuum of the engine in a very different way and eliminated the need for steam pressure. But due to Savory's broad patent, Newcomen could not sell his engine by himself and was forced to start a joint exponential with Savory. The steam engine was used to replace animals in the draining of tin and coal mines, and it was better than paying for horses, their food, and care in draining mines. Though it was a very inefficient machine, which only expended a fraction of coal used, it was still a lot better than animal power. Thomas Savory and Newcomen sold a lot of engines and used used them to drain water throughout hundreds of British and Scottish mines. They, they were also used to raise water needed for water wheels. In 1673, James Watt, who worked at the University of Glasgow, was called to repair a Savory engine being used in a physics class. When tinkering with the engine, he realized how much energy was being wasted, and as a result, added a condenser to reduce latent heat losses. The old version of the engine was made of steel, which had to heat up and cool down at every use. Watts eliminated the ground inefficiency, but the engine still did not remain perfect. In 1769, he got a patent for his new and improved version of the steam engine, which would come to be revolutionary. Once he had enough connections, he produced an engine for sale, and it sold a lot. Watts' engine was the first good engine in terms of reliability, efficiency, cost-effectiveness, and it was overall just a better engine. The Watts engine brought many other innovations with it. It drained, man- it drained mines fastly and replaced the water power. Edmund Cartwright made the power loom in 1784, which was essentially a loom attached to a steam engine which would revolutionize the cotton industry. It made textiles incredibly fast, and 260,000 power looms were being used by the end of 1850. Steam-powered bellows also helped the transition from charcoal to coke. Coke burned hotter and in turn helped Henry Corn made the puddling furnace in the 1780s. It made iron production go boom. For example, in 1740, 17,000 tons of iron were made. In 1788, 68,000 tons were made. In 1796, 125,000 tons were made. And by the year 1844, 3 million tons of iron were being made. Iron was no longer expensive or scarce, and it became the building block of the economy. Though steamers and wheels were being made in the early 1800s, one of which could carry passengers at 14 miles an hour and could carry 14 passengers in one go. It was still not a very good idea. Vibrations, noise, and strain were put on steam engine by the banned non-tarmac roads, which made it impractical and very dangerous. George Stephenson comes around and wonders, what if I put a steam steamer on wheels on a track to reduce friction? And he did just that. After a decade of experimentation with the track strong enough to support a steamer on wheels, Stephenson made the rocket the first locomotive. He used rail f- from coal mining cars to reduce friction between the locomotive and the engine to make the amount of energy needed to move much less than on rough roads. The rocket moved at 16 miles an hour, which seems bad for today, but in comparison to a horse-drawn carriage move at 5 miles an hour on a good day, it more than tripled the speed in overland shipping. The money for horse food, care, housing, and cost of the horse itself was incredibly bad. It reduced the cost and reliability. It reduced the cost and increased the reliability of overland shipping. It made goods cheaper and it expanded the market abroad. Factories could make more money, which meant more taxes for the state and a better economic position. Goods were more far-reaching and people from far away who previously wouldn't buy goods because of the cost could now afford them. This also led to an increase in time-space compression, where distances seemed to be much shorter though they were really the same. Britain seemed really much more interconnected, according to the time-space compression, a term from human geography.
Railroads built from port cities like Liverpool to inland Manchester were a huge success, and more private companies would soon begin to build railroads, and other countries would follow the example. Railroads made exporting items out of Britain a breeze, and made Britain the sole competitor domestically and perhaps even in some foreign countries, though it wasn't really a monopoly, as there was still a possibility of other goods being sold, but it was just the fact that British goods were so cheap that other countries' goods could not compete, which is why countries like France put tariffs to make their goods more appealing to the public. Markets were no longer small and local. They can now span internationally and maybe even throughout continental Europe, as decent ways of overseas shipping already existed for centuries prior. The larger market meant more revenue for factories, which also meant more money for better machinery and contributed to the overall technological advancement of the factories. Vastly cheaper goods, mass-produced goods, threatened and often did put artisans and cottage workers out of business as their products required more man-hours of work and were no competition. The innovation did not stop as they had a decent method of transporting goods. By 1850, the average locomotive could reach a respectable speed of 50 miles an hour, which would only increase over time. For example, the Japanese Shinkansen, developed in the 1970s, could reach 200 miles an hour. Trains are still being widely used in transportation today. Over 150,000 miles of track in the United States and over 10,000 miles of track in the Britain today. The The impact's technological advances in Britain had on their economy, economic dominance as well as future economy of the rest of the world was very significant. Their technological advances would come to revolutionize the industry for every developed country in the world. It changed the political power of a country to be very related to its economic power in terms of how much money worth of product they made, and it initiated the ever-present drive of sometimes unethical or immoral cost productions, cost production decreases, many of which still accrue occur today in less developed countries. The emergence of capitalism in England in the 17th century provided a chance for both state and personal profit. All people, no matter what social class, had had the chance to start their own business and succeed. Capitalism not only provided opportunities for the people to profit, but it also provided a good cash flow for the government. The cottage industry was the most common form of production of goods. Uh, Products such as clothes were made in domestic homes. This allowed for people to make their own profit by producing their own products. The cottage industry was a small-scale industry, but as people wanted more profit, they began to look towards a larger-scale industry. In the late 18th century, Great Britain was the first country to industrialize. Many people invested money into factories to produce and sell products on a larger scale. Britain had all the materials needed to industrialize due to their many colonies, and seemingly unlimited supplies of raw materials. They were, they were able to build many factories and mass-produce products such as woolen textiles, rice, tobacco, and sugar. With people having the freedom to trade freely and invest their own money to make money became very important to the rise of economical dominance for Britain. Capitalism became more widespread in Britain with, Adams, with Adam Smith's magnum opus, The Wealth of Nations in which he discussed the advantages to be had with capitalism. He proposed his invisible hand theory, which stated that the people's own greed and ambition ambition uh, for money is good for the economy of a country. He said that with capitalism, people would want to make money by any means necessary. This means that they would make products and try to mass produce these products to sell 
and make money. The government would not be able to directly profit from the people but off the products sold. This benefited both the people and the government. People would make products and the government would tax the products, but not too much that the product became unsellable. What they would do is that if a product sold well, the people would demand that the manufacturers would supply. The more products that were sold, the lower prices dropped, which was better for the economy. With capitalism in Britain, they were able to mass produce and sell so many products that everyone was happy. Uh, to increase revenue in, into the country, the government would sponsor programs to help increase trades. Also, with so many people wanting to make money, the banks would give out many loans with interest and also make money. Capitalism, in turn, helped keep the people of Britain happy and helped secure economical dominance. Labor in Great Britain is what all the jobs consisted of, whether it's agricultural or industrial. Before the Industrial Revolution, farming and working in the fields was the way people made a living. The workers were mainly paid with food more than money, which helped landowners to conserve money and buy more land. The amount of food a worker would get depended on how much work they would do in a day. Agricultural work ruled Britain's economy for centuries before the Industrial Revolution because crops were easy and quick money. Agriculture, agriculture became increasingly more important in the 17th century at the start of the Agricultural Revolution. Agricultural output began growing faster than the population due to its vast amount of farmers. To increase, the increase in food supply led to a growth in its population, which in turn meant more workers to keep increasing the population and the amount of food available to sell. This cycle of food and population growth continued until the Industrial Revolution, when farmland started being replaced for factories, which were higher profit and gave more jobs. Before these industrial jobs, children mainly worked with animals or plants on farms. It was in the Industrial Revolution when child labor became increasingly popular. Child labor was the go-to for workers in factories. Children workers were paid 80 to 90% less than adults for about the same amount of work, which is what made them such an important necessity for factory owners. Children workers were also more obedient in terms of completing work and accepting punishment. Finally, children were an ideal choice because they were small and could fit into smaller places, which was important in factories because of all the large machines. For example, if a machine in a textile mill were to get jammed or clogged, the children would be able to get the caught out with their small fingers. Child labor was the ideal and most efficient form of labor in factories as they were important in the efficient production of goods. With the vast amount of labor, Britain was able to mass produce goods for selling and trading, which gave them an upper hand in the global markets. From a humanitarian standpoint, child labor is wrong and the conditions that they went to were horrible, but in the end it helped, it helped Britain assert their economical dominance.